the last couple weeks, maybe the month, last month and a half or so, I've been taking every opportunity that I get, any window of time from like six hours until 48 hours to get away. Thank you so much, Brittany, for supporting me and letting me drive north to some land that my dad bought a while ago, and I'm getting out into the woods and walking through God's creation and nature, carrying a gun, not using it because I don't see anything, but if I do, I'm ready to shoot. And it's been so good for me, and I've had the opportunity to bring my son Judah with me quite a bit, and we have this little tradition about 20 minutes from the land is a Casey's gas station, and so we always make it a habit that one of our lunches or our dinners, we stop at Casey's and get pizza, because if you know, you know, yeah, a few of you, so good. If you ever see a Casey's, just go get pizza. Who cares about gas or whatever else you get at a gas station pizza at Cat? At pizza at Casey's is the way to go. So that's one of our traditions. We swing in Casey's, we get pizza, but a couple weeks ago we were leaving and we had some extra time and my son was like, hey dad, what if we stop at that restaurant that we always pass by grandpa's land and we get burgers and french fries? I'm kind of craving burgers and french fries and we had pizza yesterday on our way up, so could we get burgers and french fries? I'm like, yeah, we could do that. So we swing into this, this restaurant. This is like an hour and a half northern Minnesota, like a town of 60 people. The restaurant bar we walk into the restaurant, and it's apparent instantly, we're in the restaurant, we're not of this place. Everybody stops and stares at us. I'm like, whoa, whew, yeah, I remember that. And, and little did they know how much of them I really am. Like, that's my happy place, northern Minnesota, little grungy bar with like $2 food, so much better than the pretentious and overpriced city establishments, but they didn't know that. They knew I wasn't from there, right? Like, we don't recognize these two. Who are they? We're in the restaurant, but we're not of that town. They were gracious, they were kind, the food was good, it was a great time. But you know that feeling, right? Maybe, maybe that's not your example, but you have this experience of being in something, but not quite of it. Like, I, I, I'm not sure that I quite fit in, I'm not sure that I quite belong. Maybe you feel that right way right now, here in this church. And this is an, a, a reality, a tension, that we, as followers of Jesus, feel in this world. We're on week three of a three-part series, In But Not Of, as we've been looking at the scriptures, as Jesus is saying, the world, if you were of it, they would love you, but because you're not of the world, the world hates you, it doesn't understand you, it disdains you because you're in the world, but you belong to a different kingdom. You're not of this place, and so this reality creates tension for us, healthy tension, tension that can't be Avoided. This is what Jesus is teaching us. And because we live in this already not yet world, there's some tensions which we have to recognize and embrace. And there's a healthy tension, right? Some people don't like the word tension. You're like, no, please stop. Don't. I don't, I don't like tension. But we need to be reminded that tension is good and healthy, right? The right level of tension. Here's Pastor Ben's guitar. His heart rate just raised as I walked towards it. Yeah, you hear that? Had to get my face close to it because that's where the microphone is. Sounds beautiful. And when Ben plays it, it sounds even better. What if I was to turn this knob? <laughs> if I turn it one way, it'll get loose and floppy. There won't be the proper tension, and it'll sound awful. If I turn it the other way, it'll snap, and we'll all get to watch Ben like a deer in headlights as he comes up to lead our communion song. Try to figure out, what do I do with this thing, 
right? A healthy level of tension is good, and, and this is the reality that you and I live with, and Jesus is trying to help us recognize that there are tensions in life that you and I have to be aware of. Today, we're going to look at two of them, the sorrow and joy tension and the passive and active tension. The sorrow and joy tension and the passive and active tension. Let's start with the sorrow and joy tension. This is what Jesus is getting at here in chapter 16, 16 through 33. He says, a little while, and you will see me no longer. In a little while, and you will see me again. Well, there's a tension. What does he mean? What does this guy mean? And this is the disciples. Half the time they're confused with Jesus' statements. But we know the whole context as we've been reading John 13 through 17 that Jesus is preparing them for his death and departure. They're experiencing some, some separation anxiety. They don't want their friendship and connection with Jesus to be severed through death and through his resurrection back to heaven. They're kind of confused about, about all this, but they're feeling it. Sometimes you feel things before you understand things, right? Amen? Feelings are the worst. We'll talk about that later on. But they're God-given. And sometimes your emotions will actually help you to, to start to, to, to figure out what's going on inside of you and what truth is and, and how you're lacking to understand truth or to believe or to trust truth. And so the disciples are feeling something even though they don't know what is going on and Jesus is preparing them for his death and departure. A little while and you will see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Like he dies. They're sad they experience sorrow, which Jesus is going to go on to tell us about. Sorrow, sadness, loss. And then three days later, they see him again. So we don't see you, now we see you. And then 40 days later, he's going to ascend to heaven, and they're not going to see him again. And in context of this, this long conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples the night before he dies, these parting words... He, he said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. But this reality is going to come where I am no longer in your presence physically and you will experience sorrow. Verse 17, so some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. If you're ever confused by the scriptures, you're in good company. The people who walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus and lived with Jesus were confused by a lot of his teachings. And the Holy Spirit came and, and he brought clarity to a lot of this. But the reality is sometimes Jesus speaks in code. He actually tells us later on that he uses metaphors and figures of speech so that people would wrestle with what he says. We live in a culture where we want everything served up for us on a silver platter. Like make it clear, make it obvious, make it consistent. Right? Whether it's a church, a podcast, a sermon, a book, the news, like whatever intake we have, it's like, just tell me. And Jesus is often giving these, these metaphors, these figures of, figures of speech, these parables, so that those who are really hungry and thirsty for righteousness would wrestle with it. He's exposing some stuff that's going on internally, and it causes internal work. We have to wrestle with it. And, and so the disciples in this moment, they're confused about what Jesus is saying. Verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Jesus here is specifically telling the disciples that upon my death, 
and my ascension, two separate events where my physical presence is removed from you, you will experience sorrow. You will weep. You will lament. And the world, they will rejoice because they will have thought that they snuffed out this movement. The political rulers of the day the, the Roman authorities who are worried about political pressure and, and, and like controlling the world through national politics and armies and power, they're worried about this Jesus movement. And then the religious leaders of the day, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're worried about Jesus up, uh, um, upseating their power and, and kind of throwing apart their religious rules and establishment. And so they will rejoice when they see me hung up on the cross and crucified. And then when I ascend back to heaven and no one has seen me for years, they will continue to rejoice. We snuffed that movement out. Did it work? Like, here we are, 2,000 years later, on a different continent, in a different language, different culture, joining with brothers and sisters around the world, all on different continents, different languages, different cultures, worshiping King Jesus. It didn't work. It's an amazing reality. He's saying, as my presence is taken from you, you will weep and lament, and in that moment, the world's going to rejoice because they'll think they have won, but your sorrow will turn into joy. See, sorrow is inevitable for the follower, and specifically here, he's talking to the disciples about his death and his departure. But kind of bigger picture, zooming out, we know that sorrow is inevitable. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. Part of being in the world means we have losses to deal with. There is weeping and lamenting and sorrow. But he says joy is available, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Verse 21, when a woman has given birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. We have a lot of new moms here, and you probably remember the birth pains. I have three kids. I remember the pain that Brittany went through in giving birth. And regardless of if you had a natural birth or if you had like painkillers or if you had a C-section, there's some pain in that moment. And I often tell Brittany, you have no idea how hard it was for me to watch you in that pain because I'm a great husband. Don't say that. And there's, there's pain wrapped up into that. And there's residual, like many women have residual pain and residual complications from birth. But what I do know is when that child is placed on the mother's chest, there's something that happens, this bond, this connection. And Jesus is saying, sorrow, pain, struggle is inevitable. But joy is available in the midst of your sorrow, pain, and struggle. And sorrow and pain is also temporary, but joy is eternal. See, there's these moments and inflection points in our life when, when we hold sorrow and pain and joy and happiness together. But for the believer who is in this world but not of the world, in this world and and not of this world, we're going to experience sorrow and joy. But there is this hope in the future when all of our sorrow will be turned to joy forever and ever and ever. John, the writer of this gospel who recorded Jesus' words later at the end of his life, he has a vision from God. And in Revelation chapter 21, he says that there is coming a day, he hears this from God, he sees this vision and he says there's coming this day when there will 
will be no more sorrow or pain or tears anymore. For behold, I have made all things new. Jesus is saying, yes, there's moments of sorrow. You will experience sorrow in this life. And there might be more than just moments of sorrow. Like some people have loss after loss after loss. And some people are just more more prone to sorrow. You're like, man, I don't know if I'm ever going to like move out of this sorrow. The tension for the Christian here isn't to replace your sorrow with joy. It's to hold these two dueling realities together at the right level so that there's beauty in life in the midst of pain and sorrow and loss. Verse 22, Jesus says, So also again, so also you have sorrows now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And so he's talking about like, you'll see me, you'll be, you won't see me, you'll be sad, you'll see me, you'll be happy. But when I send you the Holy Spirit, the, the sacred wind of God, this close companion, you will have this type of inextinguishable joy. It's not an emotion based off of circumstances. And even again, circumstantial emotions can be very helpful. I think sometimes in the church, like we don't do a good job of like trying to understand where our emotions lead us, like how our emotions are, are if we dig a little bit deeper, we'll understand, oh, I'm, I'm responding this way or I'm responding that way because of these different things. And sometimes we kind of short circuit the chain, the, we short circuit the, the experience of emotions. Like there's a psalm, a beautiful psalm, I, I believe it's Psalm 30 verse 5 where it says, weeping lasts for the night but joy comes in the morning. And how often do we sometimes rush to the answer? Like, well, yeah, you're sad tonight, but tomorrow you're going to be better. Oops, did I move on? Didn't mean to. We're not going there yet. It, and the reality is, for some of us, our sorrow may be more than a moment. Like, that's a metaphor. In the scriptures, when it says that weeping lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning, that's not a timeline. It's not a promise that by the morning you will feel better. It's this metaphor for, yeah, there is momentary affliction. There's momentary sorrow. There's momentary sadness. But for those in Christ, there always will come eternal joy. You'll experience elements of it here and now. There's this tension here and now when you're in the world but not of the world, you're going to experience unique sorrows and joys that collide and work together and pull on each other and and create this great mystery that is hard for you to solve. You can't even solve it if you tried. But for the believer, there always will be a new dawn. There always is a new morning. It might be 80 years from now. You might be like two. There are some two-year-olds in here. There's sorrow ahead, little babies. I'm so sorry. And, and some of us are plagued with melancholy. Like I, I said, I hate emotions. I, I like one emotion, gladness. There's all these other ones that I want to suppress and push away and get away from because they're sad. But you can't experience real joy if you don't understand sorrow in this life. There's a tension there. And, and some people are more prone towards sadness and melancholy and, and, and And the reality is, the sorrow might last a lifetime, but the promise from God is that there is eternal joy that can't be taken away. Sorrow is inevitable. It's it's a this and that reality because joy is also available, right? It's not this or that. It's not sorrow or joy. It's sorrow and joy. Sorrow is temporary, and joy is eternal, 
That's what Jesus is going on to say here. Look at verse 23. Well, 22, the end of 22, he says, no one will take your joy from you. I'm giving you a gift that is not contingent on circumstances. Yes, your circumstances will, your, your, your experience of joy and your sorrow will ebb and flow with circumstances. But when you're in me rather than of the world, like, you're, you're in Christ, right? We're in the world and we're in Christ. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're of God. We're born again, as we were told in John chapter 3. We're not of the world, we're of God. And so when you live that way, you can engage sorrow with this reminder that God has given me this promise of eternal joy that will never be taken away from me. And, and he says, no one will take your joy from you. This is a specific reminder to the disciples that persecution is coming. That they're, they're actually going to come and take your life. Religious powers and political powers, when they get in bed together, awful things happen. And you're going to be the, the victim of that, just like Jesus is going to be the victim of that. But they can't take your joy. They can take your stuff. They can take your freedoms. They can take your very life. But no one can steal the eternal promise of joy that I've given you. And in fact, you, you will experience some of that joy here and now if you learn to release and to give up control and to say, it's not my life and my stuff to control anyway. And in the midst of sorrow, I, I can say, God's with me. He's promised me a greater day. Verse 23, he says, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. There's a tension here even between prayer. Like, and I've talked about that a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to go back there. Like, how come sometimes we ask in God's name and we don't get it, and sometimes we do get it? And, and what does that mean here? But Jesus essentially is setting us up saying that there's this relational connection that you have with God the Father through me where you can come to him and you can ask anything. You can bring your joy, you can bring your pain to him and then he says, I, I've told you all this so that you can come to me and that at the end of verse 24, he says that your joy may be full, not taken away from you, not contingent on circumstances. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. And he purposefully confuses them because most growth comes from asking questions and not just from receiving answers. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Saying, okay, so for three years with you, I've been giving you figures of speech and metaphors, and in this moment here, before my death, I'm going to give you something plain and clear to hear. Verse six, uh, 26, he says, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. He, he's giving us access to God the Father. He's saying, in my life and ministry, like, I've been praying on your behalf, and actually in John chapter 17, which we're going to look at next month, throughout the month of December, it's Jesus praying for us on our behalf. He's saying, in my life and ministry, I've been praying for you on, uh, on your behalf, but now in this new reality, when I send the Holy Spirit and I ascend back to heaven, you are able to go to the Father directly yourself. He says, in that day you will ask in my name, and so we pray through Jesus' name to God the Father. He says, I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Isn't that amazing? Like, you have direct access to God the Father. 
Yes, I, I will ascend to heaven. I'll be sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and I'm actually praying on your behalf in heaven. That's what Jesus is doing right now on our behalf. He's having a conversation with God the Father about us. But he's saying, you also, because the Father loves you, you can go directly to the Father. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. In the midst of your sorrow, in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your struggle, there is joy knowing that you can go directly to God the Father with all of you, the best and the worst of you, the most complex and confusing parts of you, and the most clear and like best character traits of you. It's all welcome. These last couple weeks as I've been going north, I've been able to spend a ton of time going up by myself some and just sitting in the woods, and all you do is look and listen when you hunt. It's amazing. Who knew that for hours, like, you can just watch a squirrel and think about nothing, and it's so good. Look and listen, and, and I've had a chance to bring my son up with me a couple times, and he sits there for hours just looking and listening, and there's something odd in, like, my makeup and seems to be in his makeup, and this isn't how everyone works, but it's how we're wired that after spending hours freezing our butts off in the cold just looking and listening, like, it unlocks some, some level of honesty and intimacy, where, where I begin to process God, things with God and, and tell God things and ask things of God and have this conversation with God. And, and my son begins to talk to me about things that I'm like, man, a lot of 10-year-old boys want to talk to their dad about this stuff. Thanks, buddy, for opening it up. And he just starts chattering once we get out of the deer stand because there's no talking there, right? So maybe that's like, you just hold it in for a couple hours. Like, here, here, here's your discipleship plan. Carve out five hours, sit with somebody in silence for two and a half hours, and then see what happens. You'd be surprised. This is how I do it with God and how my son does it with me. And there's this reality that, like, after you've spent time in intimacy with someone, you can approach them with everything that you have. There's no shame and there's no, like, right? This is what Jesus is saying. For the Father himself loves you. Go to him. Run to your dad. Run to your dad. Run to your dad. He loves you. Don't hold back. Thanks, Roman. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God in me, because of me, because you're not of the world, but because you're of me and my Father, you have access. Come to us. Believe in us. Trust us. Verse 28, he says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and, using, and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you, this is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? And, and sure, they did for a moment. They believed a part. They believed what they knew. They believed what they were able to comprehend or handle or was imparted to them at that time. But guess what? Just hours from now, Peter's going to deny Jesus. They're all going to scatter. The sorrow of losing Jesus will temporarily mute their joy, and their confidence because this is life. It's an ebb and a flow in the world but not of the world. We have all these things coming at us. And so Jesus says, do you, be do, do you believe? Do you trust? And the answer to that is yes and no. Welcome to the tension. 
this and that. Yes, they fully believe. Also, mm, there's a lot of doubt. Ever heard of Doubting Thomas? Yeah, he had to touch the resurrected Jesus' hands. Peter, again, a couple hours from now, he's denying that he even knew Jesus. Jesus responds, he says, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each of you to his home, and will leave me alone. This is when Jesus is arrested and they all bolt. <laughs> Do you believe? Well, not, I don't, if you're going to get arrested and killed, I'm, maybe I don't believe that you're the Messiah. Because the Messiah, shouldn't he reign and rule and be powerful? And so they're going to bolt. Jesus is predicting this. The sorrow is going to be so much for you in that moment that you'll forget who I am. You'll forget who you are in me. Verse 33. Oh, wait. Uh, where was I? Not done with 32 yet. Okay, each of you to your own home. Leave me alone. And I love the end of verse 32. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. His confidence is in God. I'm in the world, but I'm not of the world. I'm of God the Father, and he's always with me. He will never leave me nor forsake me. You know what, church family? That's true for you and me now if we're in him. Regardless of our bolting, regardless of the the veracity of our belief or the weakness of it, God is always with us. And then he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. That Greek word is arene. It means wholeness, completeness. It's like a finished project. In the world, you will have tribulation. Greek word here could also translate as pressure, which I really love. It's like peer pressure. Remember that old word from the young days? Don't give in to peer pressure. Guess what? We all still experience peer pressure. It shifts and changes the older you get. Like sometimes it's like, man, I need to make more money because all my peers make more money. Man, I need to be more successful because all my peers are successful. I need to look like this because my peers look like that. I need to do this because my peers do that. Peer pressure, religious pressure, social pressure, political pressure. Jesus is saying, in this world, you're going to experience these things. Pressure, tribulation, trial. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Hold these dueling realities together. You will experience sorrow. Sorrow is inevitable, but joy is available. And sorrow is temporary, but joy is eternal, so cling to it. Now, I want to just spend a couple minutes and go back to John 15, verses 1 through 11, and talk about the passive and the active tension. After I preached on John 15 a few weeks ago, I've had really good conversations with a handful of people from our church, and it's created, it's like put a spotlight on the tension between active and passive in, in myself, too. And so I want to spend a couple minutes just kind of coming back here and talking about this, this tension between the passive and the active. Jesus in John 15, verse 1 through 11 says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already are, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
By this, my Father is glorified. That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Both of these passages, Jesus mentions our joy being full. Overflowing, this thing that can't be taken away from us based off of circumstance because we have a God who transcends circumstance and time. This passage, like it's fascinating, even in it there's a tension. And I wanted to pause and spend a few minutes on this passive and active tension because I think this is where the rubber meets the road for so many of us. How do I grow? Do I read my Bible? Do I pray? Do I go to church? Do I, do I give to the poor? Do I help the needy? I'm poor and needy myself. Who's going to help me? Like all of this active stuff, right? And then there's this, this passive like, man, there's, there's Pharisees. Jesus, his ministry, so much of it is interacting with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, people who read the word. They were super active in their religion, and yet there was no godly growth. And so how does this work? And even this metaphor that Jesus is using here about the vine and the branches and the fruit, is it passive or is it active? Look at verse 9 and 10. There's even a tension right here. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Why does Jesus love us? Because we're awesome? Like, yeah, thanks for loving me, God. You got a good deal. I'm pretty lovable. Is that a... No! He loves us because he loves us. Like, it, the scriptures teach that he loves us not because of anything that we've done. Jesus doesn't say that I have loved you because you're lovely. Like, I, I have loved you. I've chosen you. I've, I've chosen to love you, Period. Abide in my love. Okay, well then, how, abide seems like an active word, a doing word. And then, verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his Like, what is it? And, and I said a couple of weeks ago that, uh, that a fruit can't, what does a fruit do for its own growth? A grape, nothing. It's incapable of growing itself. It's all dependent on the vine dresser. And so there's a, a, a tension here, right? This is the analogy that Jesus is giving us, that we must stay attached to the vine. If we think about it like a tree, because we don't have any vineyards close by. I, I pulled a couple weeks ago, I had these branches, right? This one is dead, dead, totally dead. Like, this isn't going to regrow itself. It's, it's cut off from its tree. I found this in a, on the ground. This one was nice and green. I pulled it off the tree next door on my way in that Sunday. And it was really nice and green then, but look, it's starting to wither. It's been removed from the vine. It's not attached anymore. I could plant this thing in the ground. We could fertilize it. We could water it. Is it coming back to life? No. Dead, dead. Removed. This morning, I took a picture of the tree that I pulled it from. This actually looks better than those, doesn't it? Just a little bit. Not much. A little bit. Do those branches have hope? Yeah. This spring, those branches are going to be vibrant, full of color, and back alive. Well, this one, I don't know what's going to happen. I might just leave it here for the rest of life because that's what I do with things. Like, it'll just be here. And we'll be like, years from now, somebody will be like, why is there a branch over? I, I don't know. Let's throw it away. Like, there's no hope for this thing because it's been detached from its source of life. 
the, 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 the branches and the trunk and the root system. And so Jesus here in this metaphor, he's saying, stay attached to me and trust. What I said a couple weeks ago is trust the soil, right? Stay in the soil that you're in. What is your soil? Like this tree, it's just, it's there in the soil. It can't move itself. Our soil, it's like our community, it's our church, it's our friends, it's the place that we work, it's our family. And, it, and it, it's kind of mixed soil, right? Sometimes our, soiled is, our soil is soiled. Sorry, too much. Like, we all have different pressures in life. It's part of the sorrow. And, and it's like God is calling us to just stay where we are, stay planted and then drink in the water of his word through sermons, through reading, through Bible study, through groups, through people. Soak in the sun, the environment that he provides, the people that he provides. And then ultimately surrender to the vine dresser who comes along and clips back our branches, takes off the dead ones, even clips off the ones that are very vibrant and abundant so that they would bear more fruit. This is what Jesus is saying. He's, he's telling us to abide. There's this There's this tension between active and passive, and I, I think we lose something if we lose sight of the tension. There are churches, and there are faith movements that will say, it's just passive, it's just passive, it's just passive. Receive, 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 receive. God will do whatever he will do regardless of what we do. Then there's other movements that say, active, 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 get after it, get after it, get after it. Like, God's only going to do what, what, what you allow him to do. And there's some tension here, and I think it's a both and, not an either or. I, I listened to two sermons over the years, one came out more recently from John Mark Homer and Tim Keller came out years ago and I was reminded of it recently. These two sermons, which I highly recommend, just go and listen to them and they'll say everything that I want to say and they'll say it in their own way. Um, I highly encourage you to listen to these two sermons. Tim Keller, what, what he does in his sermon is he reminds us that the scriptures talk about this botanical or this agricultural growth. Because God is doing something in us. It's slow and it requires dependence. Like fruit can't produce itself. It's dependent on someone else to care for it and to nurture it and to to water it and to prune it. And so I, I encourage you listening to that and it's just the slow process. And, and this, it's really helpful in this sermon too. He says sometimes like bam, the fruit's there overnight, but other times it's like this picture, right? <laughs> Some of you, this might be what your spiritual life looks like right now, heading into winter. Well, what's happening with this tree? It's, it's going into dormancy. Like its roots are still there. There's nothing being produced in the moment, but give it some time and that's going to be green again. And so it's, it's different for each one of us. Some of us might be in an abundant season of bearing fruit. Other people might be in a season of dormancy that looks like death. And this is the biblical metaphor for our growth. Passive and active, like just sit in the soil and let God do what he does. And then John Mark Comer in this sermon, he talks about how oftentimes in the first half of life or our faith, we're very active. Like the, the young, zealot, religious people, they're like, I want to read, I want to study, I want to go, I'm willing to go wherever God sends me and, and I'm willing to give everything up. And like the disciples early on in their life, right? They're like, let's go get it. Peter is just brash and ready to go. 
And then oftentimes in the second half of life or the second half of your faith, you realize in the midst of all my good activity and zeal, God was doing things in me that I, that I never would have chosen for myself. Like the vine dresser was pruning back. Like I loved money and I had to file for bankruptcy. Would I have chosen that? Would have I activated? No, God took it. I loved politics and God gave me the president I didn't want. You're welcome, regardless of where you are on politics. That might be God's gift to you, actually. I loved people too much, like in an unhealthy way. I was dependent on them, and I lost a relationship. Like, the more that you talk to some older Christians, you'll get this sentiment. David Tripp, another pastor, says, God will take you where you never intended to go to produce in you what you never could on your own. Like, talk to some older Christians who have been diagnosed with cancer. Like, I wouldn't cho- choose this. It's not what I would activate. And yet, God is doing this to me. And, and he's growing me through it. Divorce. Like, we have lovely saints in our church who have walked through hard divorces, and they would say, man, I wouldn't choose that to grow my faith. And yet, in the midst of that, God is growing me and healing me and making me a new and a different person. Depression, I wouldn't choose depression. I wouldn't choose anxiety. And yet, yet in my experience of life, God is using these things. He's doing something in me that I could never do on my own. What's my point here? That we need to embrace these tensions, not try to solve them, or not try to relieve the tension, right? Take, take the tension off, Life is floppy. Or don't amplify the tension. Give it more, you snap. But in God's economy, in God's love, he says there's a right level of tension, sorrow and joy, active and passive. As you embrace that and stay attached to the vine and surrender to the vine dresser, my joy will be in you and your joy will be full, regardless of circumstance. As we close out this morning, look at John 15, 11. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. To be filled up with the joy of the Lord is to open up our hands and receive who he is and what he's done in our place on our behalf. It's like this weird active and passive. Like in order to take communion, you have to stand up and walk to the station. But then what it symbolizes, the work of God on our behalf through the person of Jesus Christ, that's nothing that you did yourself. So I want to invite you to the table again this morning with these words in mind, these things I have spoken to you, Jesus' voice, that my joy may be in you. As we eat the bread representing Jesus' body, think about his joy being in us. As we drink the cup representing his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins, think about this new life being gifted and granted to us. And that your joy may be full. That what you receive, you will then be able to give. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that you gave yourself for us on our behalf. That you experienced the tensions of being in the world but not of the world. You yourself felt sorrow. And yet you found joy 
in God. You yourself, you were super active, obedience to God the Father, doing all that he commanded, but you also were surrendered and dependent upon him. You allowed God to lead you to places that you yourself didn't want to go in your flesh. And God produced fruit in and through you, so much fruit that here we are 2,000 years later, different continent, different language, different culture, still talking about the effect that you've had. And so, Lord Jesus, we open up our hands this morning to receive from you. May the bread and the cup nurture us. May it fill us with your joy so that we would have something to give away. We pray these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.